The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells, and with me today are Maureen O'Connor, New York sex columnist. Hey, Maureen. Hey, David. And Allison Davis beaming in from L.A. Hey, Allison. Hey, David. Today we're going to be talking about whether dating is a totally lopsided numbers game in which women are basically screwed with John Berger, the author of the new book Datanomics, which argues... Yes, totally. And we're also going to be talking about peak sexual satisfaction or when in a new relationship things are actually at their best. A new study says one year, which Maureen finds preposterous. Uh, We're also going to be talking about friends with benefits, which apparently you can actually get away with without ruining your friendship, as though anybody really worries about that part. All right. (laughs) On to our first topic, dating Moneyball. Um, John Berger is the author of Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game. John, thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a bit about your book, how you came to write it, what you think its most important messages, um, all that stuff? Sure. So normally I write about much more boring stuff like the stock market, uh, investing, energy, things like that. I, I typically write for Fortune magazine. Um, one of the things I had noticed both at Fortune and at Money Magazine, my, my prior employer, was that the staffs at Money and Fortune were disproportionately female. And all the men seemed to be dorks like me, and we were mostly married. But the women had much more going for them dating-wise in terms of everything from personality to looks. Yet, uh, a lot of them had these dating histories, these dating stories that just seemed uh, hard to believe. They had men who mistreated them or cheated on them, or some of them claimed to never get asked out at all. And I began to wonder what was going on. What'd you find? I found that this is not a strategic problem, which is what all the dating books out there, the advice books, tend to offer up. Wait, what would that mean? What would a strategic well, problem Well, I mean, mean? They, that uh, women are, are uh, returning phone calls too soon or too early, or you have to wait 28 minutes before returning a text. This whole notion that, that women are just going about it wrong. My argument is this is not a strategic problem. It's not that women are bad at dating. It's a demographic problem. Currently, among college grads age 30 and under, there are approximately four women for every three men. Uh, and this reflects uh, college enrollment rates. Uh, there are Last year, there were 35% more women than men who graduated from college. The U.S. Department of Education thinks it will be close to 50% more women than men graduating from college within 10 years. And why is that college factor so important? Americans have become uh, more rigid about dating across socioeconomic or educational lines. The rate of educational intermarriage, so to speak, is at its lowest level in 50 years. Uh, Now, for men, this kind of closed-mindedness doesn't really penalize them because the supply of college grad women is so vast. For women, however, not only does it make it statistically harder for them to find a match if they're only willing to date college grad men, but it puts way too much leverage into the hands of those college grad men. In your book and then in some of the sort of articles you've written surrounding it, you looked at some other cultures or moments in history when there were other similar sort of imbalances in gender ratios. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what you found and what that tells us about, say, the current dating market for college graduates? Well, yeah, if you look at... um, 
eras in, in, over the past hundred years that we think of as having sexual revolutions. The 1920s, for example. People back in the 1920s liked to blame the automobile for young people having more sex. Uh, the same way people today like to blame Tinder or, or various dating apps. But what happened in the 1920s was purely a demographic phenomenon. Uh, you had about 10 million young men who died during World War One, another 20 million who were injured, many grievously. So after World War One, you ended up with a very lopsided dating market, particularly in Europe, but in the U.S. as well. The whole flapper generation, it had nothing to do with culture or music or automobiles. It was all about uh, there being too many marriageable women and not enough marriageable men. So what about that dynamic makes people start being more sexually free? There's a lot of social science that's been done on this, and a lot of it actually grows out of animal science, and we can talk about the animal science if you want as well. The psychologists, sociologists who've looked at gender ratios throughout history, not just today, but going back to ancient Greece, the conclusion is that when men are in oversupply, the dating culture tends to emphasize monogamy. When women are the ones in oversupply, the whole dating culture becomes more sexualized. Now, clinical sex surveys show that people have better sex, more varied sex, longer sex, um, more foreplay in times when women are in oversupply. So that's a good thing. But the negative downside is that women tend to get devalued uh, just because of the supply and demand element. And men are more inclined to play the field, uh, less inclined to settle down because they don't have to. I wonder if online these same dynamics play out in the same way in, you know, sort of pre-online dating world, if there is a massive oversupply of women um, and you're you're tending to meet, say, three or four new people a week or 10 people a week or whatever, um, those imbalances could really make a huge difference. Online, though, there's so many people. Does it matter if there's, you know, 53 or 55 percent of the pool is women and 47 or 45 percent are men? My opinion on this may make me an outlier, and I'm sure you could find people who'll disagree with me, but I, I, I really don't think online dating has a big impact here. A lot of the guys I interviewed, many of them from New York, who were who were uh, exploiting the lopsided numbers here. You know, they didn't have their head in the laptop. They weren't necessarily spending a lot of time on Tinder. They were walking up to pretty women in bars and buying them drinks. And I, and I, I just, I, I, this notion that Vanity Fair put out that the whole hookup culture is a byproduct of Tinder. Well, you know, Tinder is three years old. Um, I, I think Four years ago, there was a pretty active hookup totally. culture in New York. There's this history of blaming the latest new technology for young people having sex, and I, 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 I'm pushing back against that idea. And Maureen and Allison, do you guys feel like there's like an undersupply of eligible men? I do in New York, but then I came to Los Angeles, and I feel like, I don't know, my Tinder's like popping off out here. <laughs> <laughs> so is there, is there a... You're going to stay out there for a while? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm moving here, guys. Bye. <laughs> so is it, can we talk a bit about city demographics? I mean, are there cities that are just significantly worse um, for dating and, and the gender ratio? Yeah, so you, your perception is totally accurate. The ratio of college grad uh women to men is much higher in Manhattan than it is in LA. Um, far and away, the best dating market, just by the numbers, for college grad women in the US is Silicon Valley. For a geographic proxy, I, I use Santa Clara County, California, San Jose, that whole area. What's interesting about Santa Clara County is that, that you can really see in the marriage data 
how the, the oversupply of men relative to women affects behavior. So let me just share some numbers with you. Nationally, 69% of women aged 30 to 39 are married. In Silicon Valley, it's 78%. In Washington, D.C., it's 48%. It's 46% in Boston, 41% in Manhattan. The other interesting thing is that the marriages are more stable out there as well. 4% of the college grad uh, women aged 30 to 39 in Santa Clara County, 4% of those women are separated or divorced versus a national average of 9%. See, to me, though, the weirdest thing about this is that though I know like as a you know, 31-year-old woman, I'm supposed to want to be in the place where men are in oversupply and such as, you know, heterosexual. But, like, all I can think is, like, that sounds horrible. (laughs) Like, I'm going to go to the place where women are, like, trapped into marriage before, you know, that they, to me, I hear it and I want to think, not trapped, this is the wrong, it's not like I go there and suddenly my life changes. But to me, it's like, I hear these things and all I can think is, like, uh, I don't want to be in a place where everybody's married. Well, uh, uh, Maureen, I have a a, a standard caveat, a standard preface (laughs) that I like to issue whenever this topic comes up. I am not endorsing marriage. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I am not even endorsing monogamy. Uh I I mean, I happen to be married, but I'm not not the morality police here. I'm not trying to tell people that they should or should not get married. Um, but just by the numbers, we, you know, educated women do tend to get married. I'm not saying they have to be interested in marriage. I'm just saying that that's the, that's the reality. Beyond sort of monogamy and coupling, um, are there other things, other changes in sexual culture that you observed as a response to these demographic, to these uh, gender imbalances? There's a lot of research out there indicating that whichever gender uh, is in the majority tends to be harder working, earn more, more industrious. And where you really see this most globally is in China. There's an economist at Columbia who did a study on this, and he concluded that 20% of China's GDP growth is a byproduct of the oversupply of men relative to women, which is from the old one-child policy in China, which encouraged sex selection, abortion, female infanticide, all those things. And as a result, in China, you now have about 20, 25% more marriage age men than women. And as a result of that, the women have a lot more bargaining power when it comes to marriage. A middle-class guy in China generally has to own his own apartment and own a a new car in order to be considered marriage material. Um, And there was an interesting story in Bloomberg that I read pretty recently, which quoted a young soon-to-be father, I think a, a married guy who was about to have his first child. And he told the Bloomberg reporter he hopes he has a girl because boys are too expensive. Now, when you think about Chinese culture and how boy-focused it was for thousands of years, the fact that this gender ratio imbalance in, in 30 years has completely changed the, you know, the preference for, for the gender of babies because it's too expensive for both young men and their parents to have a boy because of this kind of reverse dowry that's built into the system. I mean, to me, that's incredible. Where else should I consider relocating? Uh, this, this is really just like an Allison advice podcast. Yeah, basically. <laughs> well, I have you here. So, so in in general, as you ha- as you head from the east coast to the west coast, it's not perfect, but in general, the gender ratios become more female friendly, at least for uh, for college grads. So, cities, you know, I already mentioned San Francisco and Silicon Valley, but also cities like Denver, Seattle, San Diego, they tend to have not 
equal numbers of college grad women and men, but far less imbalanced dating markets than what you find out east. But there are pockets in the you know east of the Mississippi as well, and they tend to be cities that have burgeoning tech industries. So Columbus, Ohio. I don't know, Allison, how you feel about Ohio, but 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 but, but Columbus has a uh, has a, a fast growing tech industry, and it's this little pocket in the middle of the Midwest in which the dating numbers are better for women. It's fascinating. Should we turn to animals? Animals. So yes, as I said, most of the the human sex ratio research kind of grew out of animal behavior. And what scientists will do is they'll take a nominally monogamous species, whether it's fish or rodents or whatever, um, and they will play around with the sex ratio in a controlled population. Um, so in the book, I, I reference a kind of fish that at least it's monogamous during mating season. And typically, if you have a 50-50 sex ratio in the species of fish, the male desertion rate of its mate and the, and the offspring is about 20%. But if they take the sex ratio in the population and make it mostly male, so six males for every four females, the male desertion rate is cut in half from about 20% to 10%. Even more interesting, though. It's just sad to think of fish like being cheated on. And stuff. Right. Well, it's the reverse. <laughs> the, 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 and running the, away from home. No, no. The, 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 male, the males become more possessive, uh, more protective yeah. of their mates when there are more males around. They become responsible husbands. So, so you you can you can get sad in a moment. Uh, well, I just I, it's just like the idea. I never thought that we you know occasionally you talk about animals and monogamy, but you don't really think about animals being monogamous and then breaking or like modifying <laughs> their monogamy. It's like you're, this is either a monogamous species or it's not a monogamous species. Well, Dave, I'm really going to sadden you right now. <laughs> Do you have your Kleenex? Oh my ready? god, I'm about to weep. Yeah. Okay. All right. So when researchers take the sex ratio in this population of fish from five to five to four males for every six females, there is a hugely disproportionate behavioral response. The male desertion rate goes from 20% to 52%. Um, So basically the prevailing mating culture among the species of fish goes, goes from monogamy to polygyny. The scholarly or the scientific explanation for this is that when females are in oversupply, um, mating with multiple females becomes a better reproductive strategy. A, a male who mates with multiple females, even if his first, his, if, if the male's first brood <laughs> is abandoned and more vulnerable to predators, he'll still produce more offspring overall. Whereas if, if the males are in oversupply or the females in undersupply, it's in his genetic interest to protect um, his mate and protect their offspring. Oh, are are you crying? You you know, it actually ceased for me. It ceased to be romantic and sad, and just became like a curiosity, brutally evolutionary. Um, (laughs) So we've talked about the idea that, say, if a college-educated woman is looking for a man, there's sort of places she can go, but there are also some sort of I don't know behavioral options that could sort of even out the ratio. Like you've you've talked a little bit about mixed college marriages, or could you tell us a little bit about that? About what sort of marriage 
practices, yeah, how so, they might alter? So if you look at single people age 22 to 29 um, who, who do not have a college degree, there are approximately 9 million of those men versus about 7 million of those women. So the blue-collar guys... Which is like a huge gap. Huge, yeah. And the, the blue-collar guys have it just as hard as the white-collar women, only those blue-collar guys are not writing screenplays or New York Magazine stories about their dating woes. I mean, but but I, I get tweets from them, and I and they, they say to me, how come nobody ever talks about us? And they should be, because they are in just as challenging a dating market as the as the cosmopolitan women of New York or the educated women of the United States. Um, and in my mind, it's a little bit of advice, but I think it's more of a prediction. And that's the way I try to frame it in the book. I think it's inevitable that those working class guys and the white collar women will eventually meet. Um, and in fact, my my wife has a as a hairdresser in, in Soho, and like most Soho hairdressers, he's like half hairdresser, half therapist. And, and she was telling him about the, about the book at one point, and he said, you know, I have these three clients, the Amys, uh, all very attractive Wall Street women who, after years and years of Manhattan dating hell, wound up marrying New York City cops and firemen. And to me, this makes sense. You're going to see more of these pairings because that's where the supply and demand is. And in fact, if you look at dating in the African-American world, where the gender imbalance in higher education is more extreme, it's almost two women graduating for every one man, it's much more accepted, much more commonplace to see educated women married to working class guys. And I think... African-American dating and marriage is kind of at the forefront and that these these mixed collar relationships are going to be much more common, much more accepted. Yeah, black people. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so we've been talking with uh, John Berger, the author of Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided num- Numbers Game. Um, and John is actually going to stick around when we talk about a couple other things. So let's move on to our next topic, the sexual peak. Maureen, do you want to get into this? Yeah. So um, a team of researchers in Munich actually did a study about the level of sexual satisfaction people experience sort of over the course of a relationship. They asked 3,000 people between the ages of 25 and 41 about how happy they were and how long with their sex lives, how long they'd been with the person they're with. And they found that the peak level of sexual happiness occurred 12 months into the relationship. Their theory was that that's sort of the moment when you still got enough sort of passion and novelty, but um, people have been together long enough that they know how to do it. And what they also found was that the sort of strongest correlation in waning sexual interest was when fighting and arguments and sort of relationship conflict increased. And you thought, but you thought the one-year mark was like super late, right? <laughs> I was surprised because I was like, I always thought that the cliche was that the excitement disappears after like three months or something. Maybe I'm just dead wrong. Or maybe you just like maybe move, I have bad move sex. through it quickly. I don't know. <laughs> You're advanced. advanced. Get on with it. Yeah. yeah. The thing that's <laughs> that interesting to me about this graph, that Maureen actually has a printed out copy of it here, is like I'm interested in all these categories that don't appear. That is like the first categories within the first year. I'm interested in like date one, like night yeah. one, night two. Right. Those are like actually the gradations that I'm most interested in. Like what is the what it, like what number sexual encounter is it that's the best one? Mm-hmm. Like is it's it the, definitely not one? Yeah. But could it be like three or four? Or couldn't it also be one? I think if it's one, though, that suggests that there won't be um, 
like a three or four. This relates to one of my favorite factoids from another book that deals with sort of numbers and relationships, which is The Science of Happily Ever After by Tai Toshiro. And he looked at a series of studies um, sort of within relationships and found that the rate at which people report liking their partner tends to decline at about a rate of 3% per year, whereas lust that they feel for their partner declines at a rate of 8% per year. So he sort of puts these all into graphs and finds that his sort of theory is that the amount that sort of lust decreases is since his outpaces liking so much that sort of relying on sex is a loser's game no matter what in a relationship. And is there a point at which those two lines are the same? No, but, you know, he only looked up to, like, the first seven years Uh was the sort of data that he was working with. I mean, if you were to look at... I feel relatively lusty. I would say, like, (laughs) I've been been with my wife for, like, 14 years. I mean, I guess, like, people who've been married say this all the time, but, like, there are definitely periods when things are, for both of us, like, way hotter, and then there are definitely periods when they're... And it's just not. I mean, I guess if you're looking at big populations, those things make more sense than when thinking about it exclusively inside a single relationship. I have this weird, like, fairly old wives tale belief that, like, the nine month mark is when everything, like, either, like, totally peaks or totally goes to hell. Um, so for me, a year seems kind of late, but, like, nine months is, is my general sweet spot. But that's, I think someone told me that once, like, nine months is when you know if a relationship's going to work out. So there's no science involved in this whatsoever. But that's just what I believe. Do you think any of this stuff is truly quantifiable? That you can really, you can really know uh-huh. when, which, which, you know, if you've had sex with somebody 20 times, you can really quantify, well, time number five was the best. Or that, that at seven months or at nine months or 10 months, you'll, that's when you'll know whether he or she is the one. Well, I guess there's some things you can quantify, like you can quantify how many times you're actually boning. The rate at which you're fucking, if you know, if there's 52 weeks, this week was the, the, the hot one. week. This week, but there's the also last. all the these apps that are trying to like help you quantify that, right? They're like sex tracking apps to help you improve in bed. So like now it's kind of a, yes, spread, yeah, spreadsheet. What, is there an iWatch app that I missed? <laughs> that. Uh... <laughs> I'm sure there is. Wait, how 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 how, do, how does that work? One of the um the fitness tracking wristbands. Wait, is there a sex bit? I didn't know that. There, there <laughs> sort of are, sort of not quite, but there was one that um it was a regular fitness tracking one, and there was a day that they made all the data public, and like you could look at your friends' data and stuff. They updated, and then everybody freaked out because all of a sudden they could look at it and say, "Hey, you had a lot of physical activity at 3 a.m." And everybody all of a sudden could see each other's like fuck moments based on that. But there are several <laughs> apps that um do this. There are other ones where you literally turn it on, set it on the mattress and like it times you and gives you like you thrusted like three times per minute or whatever it was. This is gamifying sex or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but now there's a new one coming out called Lovely that's like a like a, ah. they're calling it a Fitbit for your penis. It's like a cock ring that the dude wears and it's like it gives you all these different metrics and then at the end tells you like you could stand to thrust a few more times or like you know like <laughs> your your G force wasn't like forceful enough. Like it, it gives you all Is these G force a term that steps. I'm supposed to know? <laughs> yeah, David, if you have to ask <laughs> All of which seems crazy because when um, I attempted to use spreadsheets briefly with a guy I was dating out of the sort of like stunt of actually it was when I was working on the stamina article. I was like, how long are we having sex for? Let's time it Uh Um, because it actually like you you set it on your mattress and you bounce up and down. So it gets it's like 
baseline. And I'll try to tell you, like, you get, like, an award for, like, rapid thrusting this time. (laughs) But, like, none of these actually reflect whether or not the sex was good. It gives you, like, a your little like imaginary trophy that is like, congratulations, you had amazingly pleasurable sex today because there was a lot of noise, which doesn't necessarily mean that you enjoyed it a lot. It just means there was a lot of noise. But of course, once I knew I was going to get a trophy every time I made a lot of noise. Of course, how could you shut up? Of course, then I was going to be really loud to see if I could beat last time. So competitive, Maureen. (laughs) I know, I'm really competitive. I had a conversation a few months ago with a guy. He's kind of the king of wearable technology. And he was into creating a technology in which you would know your date's heart rate. So you could measure, like, uh, whether he he happened to be gay, uh, Mm -hmm. but whether, you know, his date was into him. So he would know immediately, like, oh, they just met, his heart rate went up. Um, Is that a reliable measure of sexual interest? He seemed to think it was. God, the idea that I'd be exposed in that way, like, totally horrifies me. That's actually a joke on... That new TV show, Minority Report, that they have a scene when, um, you know, set in the future, and they walk into a club, and they all, like, swab their cheek, and then they put on a little wristband that has their DNA info, so then they sort of tap bands, and everybody's like, 51% match. And someone goes, God, my mom once told me about Tinder. Did you know people used to text each other before they decided whether or not to have sex? And everybody's like, <laughs> God, that's so romantic, as opposed to watching each other's rates of heartbeats. So depressing. So we've been talking about uh, peak sexual satisfaction, which I guess will be in like 2200. Yeah, that's what we've learned. (laughs) Uh, Now let's move on to our last subject, friends with benefits. What happens to the friendship part of a friends with benefits situation once the benefits are no longer in play, asked Melissa Dahl of New York's social science site Science of Us, pointing to some recent research showing some pretty good news. The friendship isn't necessarily doomed, she wrote. The research was in the archives of sexual behavior. Uh, It was a study of 308 college students, which I think may be the only people who really use the phrase friends with benefits. Is that something that... (laughs) Um, Don't you just say, like, hooking up now? Well, who would say friends with benefits? uh, You still use it? Yeah, that's like a distinct, like, genre of person you're fucking, right? Uh I think it's so relevant. I don't know. Anyway, 18.5 of them said that they were no longer friends at all. Uh, 31.5 remained friends, but were less close than they used to be. 35.4 remained friends and were just as close as they were before they started having sex, while 14% remained friends and were even closer than before. I love like all of the minute gradations of closeness that are described in the survey. <laughs> um, what did you guys think of the stories? I mean, I really think that there's sort of a flaw in the way we describe closeness. I assume it's that people say like, oh, we were friends and then we started having sex and now like I feel awkward talking to them or something. But like, is there any way to describe being close to somebody once you've seen their genitals? Aren't you just like inherently closer to that person once you've had yeah, that experience? Yeah, how could you be less close, you mean? Totally. Yeah. I think there's some element also where college students are like, you can't cease to be friends with the person you have sex with because you're trapped on a campus with right. them. Right. Like, you're having, them everywhere. Like, it's you know, basically just, a prison. Yeah, I hadn't <laughs> thought about this, but the, the phrase friends with benefits, if anything... If that phrase were to decline in adulthood, it's because you don't have to remain friends with somebody once you've decided that you're done with them. Right. You know, that you can just, like, completely cut them off if you want to. Right. I guess now I'm thinking about it, I think I have a decent number of friends that um, had benefits at some point where either we dated or we dated and then there was some, like, sort of sloppy period afterwards in which we weren't dating. But I think that does actually turn out totally fine for me a decent amount of the time. What do you think, Allison? Um, I'm probably like batting zero on that one. Oh yeah, yeah. Like no, no, no man that I have friends with I've ever hooked up with 
Um, and if I hooked up with you, we're probably not speaking anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. Um, but I, I do find it just difficult to resume like a completely normal, intimate friendship because I feel like with in friendships between men and women, there's already sort of like a false like girlfriend, boyfriend comfort in a way. And once you kind of cross the threshold, it's really hard to go back to being as normal and as intimate as you were. I don't feel any obligation to stay friends with an ex-boyfriend. I don't think there's a reason to necessarily. Well, um, they're probably all the reasons that you guys were relatively close in the first place. Yeah, right? but I don't see any like kind of there's there's a feeling some people have, I think, where they're like, well, since we dated, we do need to get coffee once a year. And like, I don't feel any <laughs> obligation that way. Yeah, Although, those coffees must be so painful. I know. But if I do want to be friends with someone, um, I think I have a pretty decent batting average for that of having like fucked and then just been friends. I should learn from you. I don't know. Maybe that just means I'm heartless. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of view this as progress because when you know when Harry Met Sally came out way back when, right. and this is kind of that's kind of my era. I think that the line was. You realize, of course, that we can never be friends. Why not? What I'm saying is, and this is not a come on in any way, shape, or form, is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. That's not true. I have a number of men friends and there is no sex involved. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. You only think you do. You're saying I'm having sex with these men without my knowledge? No, what I'm saying is they all want to have sex with you. They do not. Do too. They do not. Do too. How do you know? Because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail them, too. Sounded plausible at the time, but I think people are more evolved now, and I think it's it's all... We can oh. be friends and never fuck, or we can fuck and be friends Wait, anyway. Wait, did they, did they end up together in that movie, or did they just... They was it, of course they did. Wait, uh, no, I've never seen it. Don't never... ruin this. Oh, Allison, it doesn't count as a spoiler if, if it's, it's from, a, if like, If it's a romantic ago. comedy, they always end up together. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for Sex Lives. Um, our producer is Sam Dingman. Thanks again to John Berger for coming by. And also to Zach Dinerstein, Henry Malofsky, and Laura Mayer at Panoply. For Maureen O'Connor and Allison Davis, I'm David Wallace-Wells. We'll talk to you next time, and thanks for listening.